we're all on the same spaceship Earth. We're all crew members of spaceship Earth. There are no passengers. And this way, the stories that we tell each other on how we divide each other up and separate each other, it's not serving us well anymore. We're Mark Buckley, regenerative futurist. Welcome to The Futurists. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much. I'm glad it worked out. So there's a sort of a debate that we have going on with uh, some of our guests over whether or not the title futurist is something that is positive or sort of over overused. What do you think? Well, I, I heard your Reluctant Futurist podcast, which was fabulous, um, and, and many of the others. I actually think it's a fabulous thing. It's, it's really spot on. We're all futurists. Um, before uh, history, before the past, always comes the future. Everything that we're doing in our daily lives, we're working towards the future. And if you're not, stand still, don't do anything, you're still going to end up in the future anyway. You bet. Yeah, exactly. Um, we had Jeff Jarvis on last week, and Jeff was saying he's a pastist. But I think part of that skill of being a futurist is looking in the past and sort of seeing the mistakes we've made. And I know that's a bit of a, a common theme um, for you, particularly in, you know, you call yourself a regenerative futurist. Absolutely. Um, so what are we trying to regenerate? all life so we're trying to really create the conditions conducive for life to regenerate itself to really have flourishing abundance and create those conditions that regeneration is really a no-brainer it's natural it's uh, how the world has always worked so I wanted to um, let's let's get a bit of background as we we get into your field and your interests and, um, you know, how you came into this. But, um, you know, tell me about how you came to be in Hamburg, Germany, where you live now, and how you came to be um, involved in, you know, um, the, uh, the climate uh, talks, uh, you know, COP, COP28 and, and so forth, the uh, Dubai Future Forum and, and the stuff you've done with, um, you know, out of Europe with various... Uh, uh, government bodies, the Davos crew and the WHO and those sorts of groups. How, how did you, you know, take us through that journey that's taken you to, um, you know, the, the upper echelons of, uh, you know, sort of European policy setting? I've been in this uh, field and area for over 32 years and have a long background and it was, I didn't see the climate god. I wasn't struck by lightning or the uh, climate lightning or and I'm not a refugee I'm not a climate refugee this was a gradual transition over a long period of time where the lights just getting, kept getting brighter and brighter and I could never go back I've, I've yeah. emerged out of that chrysalis and uh, um, uh, I ha I'm very fortunate to have a lot of wonderful uh, mentors and friends over the years who are also futurists, environmentalists, uh, economists, and uh, sustainable architects. So William McDonough, Bill McDonough, the father of the circular economy, is a good friend of mine, an architect on a couple of my projects, a super man also at the World Economic Forum. I was one of the first 50 people trained by Al Gore as a climate speaker. Oh, wow. And leader at his ranch in Carthage, Tennessee, when he did his very first training. I mean, both his movies, The Inconvenient Truth and the sequel to The Inconvenient Truth. Um, and then I later became the Germany and Austria country manager for Al Gore's Climate Reality Project. And uh, still do a lot of trainings and mentoring all over the world with the Climate Reality Project. And uh, matter of fact, I saw uh, Al Gore uh, not only after his most recent, very provocative and uh, upsetting, he was very upset, uh, TED Talk, yeah. but also at, at the World Economic Forum this year and then last year at COP27 in Shaman Sheikh, Egypt. Um, we had a nice gathering for climate reality leaders where we were, we were kind of talking about what things were going on there. And his 
being upset now um, about having um, president of an oil and gas company be the head of the COP, coming into the head right. of the COP yes. for COP28 as a big part of why he's upset about that because it's a conflict of interest, not because the president is a, is a bad person or um, not eloquent and well-educated and cares about the climate, but he has a stark conflict of interest yeah. being being doing both those things. And we're seeing that pop up a lot more in, in international organizations where uh, there's more lobbyists, uh, oil, gas, fossil fuel industries that have these conflict of interests all over the place. Um, that's really bad. Um, Germany, I, I lived the last 14 years in Hamburg, Germany. I'm rarely there, maybe 5% of the year I travel quite a bit, a bit doing events all over the world. Um, we're here in Bangkok now. I just finished Tech Sauce. I'm doing an event tomorrow for DGTO on um, the new triple bottom line. And uh, I do all the international circuits. So not only Davos, the World Economic Forum, the World Government Summit, uh, the United Nations, New York Climate Week, the Conference of the Parties, the COPs that are around the world. I've been going to the COP since uh, COP 12 and um, was lucky through m the two major mentors and friends that I mentioned, um, but many others who have helped me and, and guided me on that process. Been very fortunate and lucky. It's also interesting when you concern or you interest yourself about the future around innovation, around climate and environment, how you tend to attract those type of like minds yes, and those yes. people who are also thinking about the future and, and that. Um, the biggest one that I, the biggest two that I haven't mentioned so far, one is I studied ecological ec economics with Herman Daly at the University of Maryland. Um, long time ago and sadly he passed away last year October 28th uh, he was the second father of ecological economics he was originally at the World Bank yeah. and he left in an open letter very pissed off and very adamant about capitalism about the way our economic models are going and and he wrote an open letter and left and and uh, I read it and said I need to learn and follow anything that he does because he's thinking in the right way. Um, the other one is our Buck Minister Fuller, Bucky. Yep. Um, the Buck Minister Fuller Institute did the geodescent domes, uh, um, uh, diaxium map of the world, uh, look at the world in a way that we've never looked at it before. Um, and he created the world game or the peace game. And 1967 was the first one played at, not the first one, but the first one played at an international event, Montreal, Canada, at the World's Fair 1967 wow. in his geodescent dome, Quebec, uh, uh, or no, Montreal, Canada is where he played it at the World's Fair in 1967 had people from all over the world come and play this new world game to say, what does a world that works for everyone look like for you? And, and then he, he brought forward that answer. He wrote the book, The Operating Manual for Spaceship right, Earth. Right, yep. And uh, just people like that. that well, you know, he me. and Jacques Fresco and yes, people yes. like that really did sort of try to create a bit of a template for us to follow. But... Um, you know, uh, the, the problem we, we have, you know, is the one of the commercial viability myth, that things have to be commercially viable for us to do them. But, you know, if you, if you look at the whole um, you know, problem with fossil fuel, hydrocarbon pollution in particular, let's even put aside the, the, the role hydrocarbons have played in, in um, creating climate, right? You know, um, because I think that's a, a, a fugazi, a, you know, furphy. Um, but, you know, we, we could have eliminated hydrocarbon fuel sources, particularly for electricity generation, you know, 20, maybe even 30 years ago, if we had accelerated development of renewable tech, battery tech, even nuclear 
hydro, you know, hydropower, you know, solar wind, that sort of stuff. Europe just released some of the results this week of um, the work they're doing on solar uh, solar deployment, and they're ahead of schedule on that. You know, China has deployed more solar in the last uh, two years than the US has historically in the last 50 years. So we could do it. Um, and, and we can certainly produce a lot cleaner air and, and um, you, know, the, you know, fix some of these issues. But it's always this BS about who's going to pay for it. And, you know, the market's making tons of money out of hydrocarbons. Why would we want to do anything different? 10 million people die every year from air pollution, right? We could have saved those lives, but like it's, you know, what is the, there's this sort of false equivalency between, you know, GDP growth and economics and, and, and the market, you know, stock market and so forth and, and human lives and the health of the planet. This, this conflict is, is not really going to be resolved until we come up with better value systems really, right? So. We're was kind of the Kodak easement thing. We're holding out for every last penny of our yeah. paper market, yeah. where we've already invented the solution to, you know, for the digital camera and fixed a lot of things. And uh, fossil fuels are stranded assets. Yes, uh, they're a bad option. The only thing looking worse than fossil fuel investments is the the meat market. Right. We're looking at animal agriculture. Is a, is a huge stranded asset and, and uh, has gotten a black eye. And, and I, I just think and know we, we didn't leave the Stone Age because we ran out of stones. Right. And get, guess where that comes from? That comes from BP. That's a BP that said that. But it's so interesting uh, that we think that we need to hold on to these weird uh, fossil fuels, hydrofluorocarbons, and these outdated innovations and technologies to get us into the future. And in reality, there are much better ways to live and act and, and not only better economic models, there's better life models. And there is a core model of the way that the world is, has always worked. And, and we still haven't figured out how to harness that for better and it's that you know you mentioned the commercial aspect of it is kind of why we hesitate can we sell it is it going to be expensive is there enough money and we're leaving tons of money on the table by not adopting and adapting those technologies and advancing to that future um, where we would have abundance we would have regeneration we would have the things that that mm -hmm. we need to get get to and and be at for better life we're not worried about population growth or whether we have enough money i mean most of the money and you've written about this in your books we can just print it up if we need more money yeah. we we need a better economic system we yeah, need yeah. an ecological economic model and system to kind of replace these bad models another bucky term if you're not happy with the models and things out there just create a new model that makes the old models obsolete and replaces them. And uh, just in the last two years, there's been more than 20 new books in the last two years written just on ecological economic models. In the last right. two years, in all human history, there hasn't been 20 books written on ecological economic models. Yeah. So what is that telling us? We're about due for something, a change. People are fed up. And so if they're not seeing the change, they're beginning to create that change in the models themselves. The most promising one that I really think is, is so interesting, I don't know if you've heard about it, it's called Earth for All. It's by another book from the Club of Rome. They wrote the original book back in 1972, The Limits to Growth. They just came out last November with a new book called Earth for All. It's a new economic, ecological economic model book, but it involves five different economic models, ecological economic models. One of them is the well-being economy. Yep. Another one is Kate Rowworth's donut economics. Right. The other one is degrowth or post-growth economics. And then two final core whammy models that I absolutely love. One is the original World Model 3 from the book, The Limits to Growth and MIT. They brought back Jörg Randers, who's one of the authors 
in, the, in that book and the MIT researchers and scientists who created the World Model 3 brought them back to get an updated new version, a systems dynamic model of the World Model 3 for this new book, for this new ecological economic model to bring back into that system. That's amazing. But the next one is, guess what? The next model is Professor Dr. Johan Rockström's planetary boundaries. Uh, I know Nine that. planetary yeah, yeah. boundaries and how can we operate within the safe operating spaces of those nine planetary boundaries without going over the tipping points that we right. have. Yeah. And so they're combining all those into one model to work and wow. giving great case studies. Fabulous, fabulous. What do you think of, um, I know it's, uh, you know, I mean, this is sort of process uh, and, and, and methodology a bit, a bit if we can get into this debate. But um, are you familiar with the work that Kim Stanley Robinson's done on Absolutely. eco-economics? Ma- matter of fact, he, I, I work on what most people don't I think know. he's coming on the show next month. Yeah. Oh, so. that's great, yeah. 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 So I, I've spoken to him many times. So uh, I wrote the Sustainable Development Goal Manifesto for the United Nations. Ah. It's kind of a manifesto that says, what does the world look like in December 2030 right. if we reach all the Sustainable Development Goals? And then if you like it and the manifesto resonates with you, let's manifest it. Let's make it happen. Well, uh, what most people don't know is that and I hope they understand it's a no-brainer. After the Sustainable Development Goals end in December 2030, guess what? There's going to be other goals. And I'm the right. futurist. That's why I was originally the re- resilient futurist because they're called the Resilient Development Goals. And I worked on this project called the Resilience, Fr- Resilience Frontiers in Songdo, Korea in 2019 to iterate with the interagencies of the United Nations what do the goals look like from December 2030 to December 2050 that we need after the SDGs and start that process going and moving forward and what tools do we use? And Kim Stanley Robinson was and is still on the project of the Resilient Development Goals, Resilient Frontiers, and last time I saw him was at COP26 in Glasgow. Uh, and. Just a great time he spoke. No, I think in a it, you know, in terms session. of climate science fiction, he's probably the greatest Absolutely. living author yeah. you know, in terms of climate relevant sci-fi. And uh, you know, the first exposure I got to sort of his eco-economics principles with the, was with the Mars trilogy, um, and uh, it's an extraordinary you know trilogy. But the thinking uh, in the economic side of it is. Yeah, you know, it, it's actually really interesting. If you think about Elon Musk shipping off to Mars, um, you know, with a million people to populate a city there, what are going to be the economic goals of, of the Martian colony? Well, the first goal is sustainability, right? Um, because you want to be able to survive with the starship stopping, you know, um, coming and supplying you with food and equipment. So self-sustainability is the primary goal. Um, and then that will produce uh, over a long period of time if you don't have the like the commercial interests uh, mess with it a uh, system that not is only ecological ecologically sound um, but also produces this social prosperity or common prosperity goal as a whole where everyone's working together for the good of the colony and so then you know I'm, I'm reading this book you know about the, you know, Mars and colonizing Mars and, and the challenges to this sort of eco-economics concept by the big corporates, the transnationals, as he calls them. And then the epiphany was, we could have that model on Earth. You know, and, uh, you know the, this really interesting concept they have in, in the early parts of the book where people don't have assets like we have them today, but they have increased credibility. They more the, they, the more they put back into the system, so you're like a richer person as far as society is concerned if you generate more air, water, food than you consume, you know, because that's a goal that is important for the, the colony's sustainability and ongoing existence. Like really, yeah, like it's a really interesting proposition, but if you try and place that on today's world, it seems so foreign 
and so, uh, you know, almost crazy. Economists would say, you're crazy for thinking like, you know, that sort of uh, model. But the real, well, why, you know, why is it that we've come up with the systems we have? And, and, you know, like, I always say this, you know, when I'm talking about the future of capitalism and the need for reform and, and better economic systems, the classic argument, particularly from Americans, but, you know, same with Aussies and, you know, uh, Brits who are sort of married to uh, the capitalist system. They say, it's the best system we've got, you know. What was Churchill's quote? It's, it's the best system we have of all of the worst systems that we've tried, you know, Absolutely. whatever it was. Um, but, the, you know, if you say, well, okay, it's the best system we've got, but in 10,000 years, do you think capitalism will be the best system we've ever found? And the answer to that's obviously no, right? No, it's obviously no. So then the question is, well, why do we have to wait 10,000 years to improve on the system, right? A couple of things. I mean, you mentioned it's, you know, it's a sustainable economic model. You know, the Mars model, the sustain ourselves model. I would even say it's a resilient economic right. model. So, I mean, well, how, how do you survive in the deep, dark depths of space on Mars and harsh conditions uh, it's through resilience, and, and that's why I said the next iteration of goals is the resilient development goals, because it doesn't matter how much sustainability you have, and if a hurricane, a tornado, a flood, a drought comes, right. a war comes, uh, it can wipe it all out within minutes, and you need drinking so this food, is, water, and energy the very next hour. The this very is a really minute. important point. We're seeing Maui, you know, Hawaii right now. We've got the, uh, you know, as, as, as we're recording, we've got Hurricane Hillary that's hit, hit the, the, uh, uh, the West Coast. But at the same time, you know, we are seeing obviously more intense weather events. Uh, the economics of those extreme weather events is, is now you know, like a very concerning in terms of the cost, so much so that you have insurers that now are leaving Florida and California because of climate effect. And, you know, we haven't even spoken about Greece and, and so forth. Um, so uh, climate mitigation or climate resilience is going to be a big theme for um, you know, I think globally, but certainly for developed economies over the next, uh, you know, 20 years. But when do you think that becomes a mission, you know, where essentially for, for cities like New York um, and, and Shanghai and, and um, Guangzhou and Calcutta and, and Miami that are, you know, big targets for sea level rise and extreme um, weather uh, events in the future, when, when do we get to a point where that, um, you know, argument that it's socialism, putting money into infrastructure. When, can, when are we going to be able to get over that when it becomes a mission for humanity to make cities more resilient? One, I'm really hoping because of the resilient development goals after in December 2030 that that will uh, be a point where we'll already be on board. I, I'm already seeing a lot more work uh, in the past five years, really strong uh, in resilience period. So we have adaptation and mitigation. That's where Resilience Frontiers was developed at the United Nation level. It was through this Resilience Frontiers program. And so I am seeing a lot more movement in there. We need to understand there's three clear definitions of, of resilience that I would like to address. One is just the mental, emotional, physical resilience of if I spit on you or hit you or swear at you, that you have the resilience to, to bounce back from that uh, physical, mental, or personal abuse that you've just been subjected to. Um, that's great, but that's not the resilience we're talking about for the world. Uh, we, we hope we have that as well. The second one is this dystopian resilience where we still live in the future. You and I are still living in the future, but it's a sci-fi future. We're wearing right. gas masks, oxygen right, masks. Right, right. We're fighting over resources and we're resiliently, dystopically surviving right, right. To, into the future, but it's not very pleasant. We're resilient under I enormous uh, pressures Ex and, extreme and, and pressures. society dysfunction. Yeah. yeah, it's this Mars type of pressures, you know, it's yeah. di different atmosphere, different gravity, all sorts of things going on that are just extremely different. And it's, it's really honestly from what humanity's used to, 
it's not very pleasant. It's not, uh, it's not a, 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 what the next resilience definition that I talk about is really resilient, desirable futures. You know, right. what, what is desirable? Do we still have clean air, green grass, clean water? sanitation, the basics, is that still covered? Yeah. And how do we build those into resilient systems? So in some of these places like you've talked about, uh, Singapore, Miami, and these other um, coastal areas that are prone to sea level rise and other climate catastrophes, or heavy densely populated cities that are having tons of pollution yes. and, and uh, not only air pollution, but greenhouse gas emissions, heavy industries, also the spreads of pandemics and viruses and many other things because of the infrastructure setup, um, they're looking strongly to build in tons of resilience. And as we want to go to another city of the future, Neom, right. uh, they want to have everything within five minutes walking distance, your doctor, your school. Right, this is everything. the mixed use uh, yeah. Uh, convention, right? Yeah, and so uh, they're thinking how do we build not only resilience into that five minute walking city, but how do we build the basic infrastructure, resilient infrastructures? If we get hit by something severe, can we turn the lights on within the next few minutes after it passes? Can we have clean water and sanitation? Do we have enough to feed the line in that? But that's not just the line, these cities that are being built of the future, Mazdar, Red Sea Project, whoever we, whichever project we want to talk about, but it's cities like Bangkok, Miami, Singapore, yeah. that, are, that are making changes in their infrastructure to make sure that they can hit those uh, um, targets and meet the needs resiliently of, of their city, of the, of the places where they serve. And so it's important to know that, and I see that's coming. But what I don't see is that it's keeping pace with our exponentially growing world, with humanity, mm -hmm. with the evolution of our world. Our policies, yeah. our infrastructure is still out of date. It's usually seven right. to 10 years out of date. Yeah. It's not keeping pace with the way we're industrial. Evolving. We're still in the industrial revolution Absolutely. Uh, era of thinking. You know, yeah. our education is built on that. Yeah. Our factories are built on that. Our, uh, you know, a lot of policy. You know, um, our, our core economics in many ways are built on that. You know, extracting resources from the ground and converting them. Is, you know, yeah. they're still called blue chip companies. A lot of Absolutely. those companies. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, where I live in Hamburg, I'll, I'll tell you that is, it's Western world. It's developed. It seems great. But the infrastructure is horrific. Yeah, I'll give you a great example. 2015, when you released your your book as well, um, we had the G20 meeting in in Hamburg, uh, and you would have thought it was a war zone. I, I would have thought that there was some major calamity, a war zone or something. Just all we had was a G20 event. All uh, you know, the world leaders met to talk about the finances and about the future and the day. Before that meeting, we had a global citizens from Hugh Evans out of uh, Australia. He did a big global citizens event at the Barclays Arena in Hamburg. I kid you not, there was literally 300 plus cars on fire, probably about 50 grocery stores, shelves wow. empty, glass broken what was in. Going I on? thought it was it, nothing was going on a G20 event. And the infrastructure, you thought, well, everything shut down. Not enough police. A lot of, lot of things right. going on. Um, traffic set, shut down. The metro shut down. People were striking. And, but what? Nothing happened. The infrastructure wasn't prepared, not only for a G20, but just to support the regular people of, of Hamburg. Yeah. And, and that's just one example. There's so many infrastructures around in our world that are not prepared, they're not up to speed for just small little ripple things, small little effects. And, and the biggest example you mentioned earlier, the European Union, um, I think they're one of the biggest and best organizations in the world now doing things for the environment, doing yes, things agree. for the climate, trying to get to that net zero target. But it's really interesting that not only the ESG and that, they are also moving on the right side of history with many, many things. Before we have a break, 
Um, I want to just do what we normally call our lightning round. Oh, okay. Just so our listeners can get to know you a bit. You've, you've probably heard it before on the previous shows. So uh, this is it. Let's, let's do the lightning round. Great. So what's the first time you remember being exposed to science fiction on TV or movies or, or books? Cosmos. Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan. I'm a big fan of, of Carl Sagan. Great Cosmos. Guy. Yeah. Uh, Star Trek, obviously, is a big fan as well. So both of those are big influences. Uh, is there any uh, futurist or entrepreneur, you mentioned a few today, that really you feel like is a mentor to you or that you, you um, have, have uh, been inspired by? The one that I mentioned the most is our Buck Minister Fuller, Bucky. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what technology do you think has most changed humanity? I, I'm not sure if it's the technology, but it's uh, Star Trek. I think it's pushed uh, pushed us to think differently and, and possibilities. And we were just speaking about economics. I love the book Trekonomics. I yeah, don't yeah. know if you've ever. No, read. I, I've interviewed uh, him on uh, fabulous on the show. book yeah, yeah, yeah. and fabulous yeah, economic yeah. model. And I think, yeah. you know, that that's also there's a lot of key things that it is. I did doing. ask him what uh, you know. I um, uh, I've forgotten his name for the moment, but I did ask him on the show what was the uh, exchange rate between gold plus platinum and the US dollar. See if he can figure that out. But um, Okay, uh, la last uh, question. Is there any science fiction that you've read or position papers or something like that that's, you know, as a forecast, as a futurist, that's most representative of the, of the future you hope for? Uh, I I really like the Green New Deal. I also like um, this regenerative economics that's coming out. There's a big push on that as well. I think those are kind of hopeful. All right. So in the second half of the show, when we get you back, I want to dive into a little bit of the world of 2040 and the world of 2050 and how you think things will have changed. And let's go full futurist. You bet. Right. I, I remembered what I was going to say. I don't yeah, know please. if this would be a good time. So the reason I mentioned the European Union is just the ripple effect that the Ukraine war has had right. on all of Europe, not only on um, on gas and and uh, uh, fossil fuels, but really on everything. Beer at the yeah. Oktoberfest. And bread in Hamburg, you know, one, one day I had an early hair appointment and was going to grab some bread from the bakery. And I walked in and it was empty in a German bakery. And they said, sorry, we're not getting delivery of, of any wheat and, and stuff oh, wow. to make ba bread. And it's because of Ukraine. Oh, because of Ukraine. Because of ah. the Ukraine and supply chain. I had uh, several people order vehicles. Uh, during that time, or they do in Europe, they do new vehicles all the time. The vehicles weren't be being delivered because all the wiring for the vehicles was done in the, in the Ukraine, and how it just um, shows that too many eggs were put in one basket. There's not enough for resilience yeah. or sustainability. Well, let's get into that. food scarcity yeah. after the break because that's yeah. a big concern of mine for the next. Uh you know, 20, 30 years. But you're listening to The Futurist. With, we're with futurist Mark Buckley. We'll be right back after this break. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and The Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurist. We're with Mark Buckley, regenerative futurist and uh, uh, renaissance man. <laughs> Mark, um, um, you know, you, you speak a lot about system, uh, systemic thinking, systems thinking, and the need for us to change systems. Um, a lot of the 
human systems we've developed historically have been shown to be problematic, have failed, um, and, uh, you know, it's likely we're seeing the failure of some human systems right now. So talk, can you take me through that? Tell, tell me about um, what we've learned by looking at history at the systems that have failed, first of all. Absolutely. I, I studied system science through Dr. Fritzhoff Capra, Capra courses and, and um, out of California. He's actually Austrian. And uh, I've, I've been a big fan ever since of uh, systems thinking science. Donella Meadows also from the Limits to Growth. What was interesting is NASA did a, a study and they did it twice. It kind of split up the division of that and it's called the Handy Study. And they asked, you know, how many civilization frameworks have models and have we had in, in our world before? And there's been well over 72 different wow. civilization framework models, but they they came back and they said that there's a core of 32 and those those fringe other other 40 plus were all tied into those core 32 civilization framework models. So that's can you give any early examples? antiquity, Mesopotamia, right, Incas, okay. Aztecs, Mayas, Greeks, Romans, okay, uh, you good. know, or, or, uh, early Persians or, or early uh, China and um, ancient China and uh, 32 and all but five of those 32 collapsed because of an ecological or environmental collapse meaning and it's very simple because of basic infrastructures food water sanitation and basic infrastructure and and very high on on that was was food just the basic resources the other five that that didn't collapse because of environmental or uh, uh, ecological collapse collapsed because of disease displacement or some form of disruption, and and that's why uh, they no longer collapsed. So that 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 was an interesting learning lesson because we spoke earlier and about none infrastructure. Of them, none of them have survived until today. None. Ancient systems. None. Otherwise, we'd still be using them. Yeah, right? yeah, none, absolutely, none of them survived, and and this whole another topic. But democracy, I think, died along right. with the, the Greek Empire. But anyway, yes. that's a whole another controversial. Yeah, we don't have. Yeah, we don't have another anymore. week to yeah. talk about it. But the most interesting thing, and in, and in, in this report was is still kind of. I'm surprised that it's not so. Uh, it's not popular. Uh, or talked about very much, all of them collapsed running the exact same civilization framework model, model like the governance model structure. Right. You know what that model Cent was? Centralized government? No. no. Hierarchy. It Hierarchical model. There was right, a okay. king, queen, emperor, president, yes, right, someone okay. at top, slaves, laborers, yep. peasants, and farmers at the bottom. Right. And... That this is also, you know, I mean, we, we're still repeating that same hierarchy structure today yeah, in all of yeah, our yeah. organizations and, and cities. And, That's why and we've got this massive inequality yeah. globally today. It's a division of class and massive inequality, and it's the structure. And the other thing, the other learning lesson as well from the report was that, that, that the biggest buyout or the takeaway that they had of, of the report was that the peasants, slaves, laborers, and farmers didn't have buy-in to the to ecological the yeah, or yeah. to the civilization framework right. structure. And what they saw is that in every, all 32 cases, when those civilizations were being built up, they took peasants, slaves, and laborers from other cultures, other countries, other places, right. brought them in to build up their civilization framework, and they absorb. never had buy-in yeah. to that framework. They knew that they were going to be yeah, yeah. enslaved their entire life, be a farmer in, in this form of labor. And we're repeating that same mistake today. Saudi Arabia, Dubai, wherever we look, we have, uh, we don't call it peasants, slaves, laborers, right, and farmers. Right, right. We call them hospitality workers, construction yeah. workers. Um, but still, yeah. they get a visa. They're paid an unfair wage. They send most of their money home. They live in worker camps and large apartment buildings or places, you know, Foxconn yeah, or the, wherever. The, 
the Mexican and yeah, Latam workers exactly, in the States. Yeah. Exactly. It's Doing all, it's all, all the farming the and all the stuff to make it sustainable. At the same time, they're, they're identified as the, the, uh, the enemy yeah. that's taking American jobs. But the American system would collapse without these uh, you know, grassroots workers uh, in the system. Brexit's a huge example. Oh, yeah. 400,000 yeah. uh, to 600,000 migrant workers a year. The collapse of the year. UK economy is bang Fairly Absolutely. squarely on their bad immigration choices. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and the U.S. is trying to go that way. I don't think they could. Australia, my hometown, is my home country, is is very much on that. And it's like, uh, hang on, you know, if you talk to the richest people, you know, in the world today, and you talk to those at the top of government, they are preparing for society's collapse. They know the collapse is coming because we haven't fixed those same fundamental issues. Well, well Brett, let's take it even lower than that. Why, okay, civilization, cities, uh, uh, that's big. That's For you and I, that's a big number to talk about. Let's just talk about organizations. If you don't give your employees a buy-in to the organization they're working for, there's no loyalty. They're not yeah. going to stick around. They're not going to say and do whatever you want them to do. People need to have a buy-in to the organizational structure that they need to know that they're secure, that they're cared about, that they're going to have a future, that they're building up something that they can say, hey, I built that up. I was part of that. And I want to do a good job. If you don't have that buy-in, that, that role to play in that structure, guess what? That's when the bolt fills. That's when the right. safety standards. That's when something in that organization. Right. So we can is, we can accept that at yeah. an organizational level, and that sounds very reasonable. Why can't we accept that at a civilization level? Yeah, that's the that, that that's the, the big quandary, question. Right? The, the biggest one, and I think this goes back to one of my uh, other favorite mentors. So I, I, I mentioned to you Carl Sagan. Well, I'll, uh, also very unheard of or not very much spoken about. Carl Sagan's first wife, and I actually like to say Lynn Margulis's first husband is, is <laughs> uh, Carl Sagan. Lynn Margulis turned the scientific community on its head. One, uh, Carl Sagan talked about the cosmos, and she talked about the microcosmos. But the biggest claim to fame or uh, thing that we missed is she said, Neoliberalism, neo-Darwinism doesn't exist, and this misunderstanding that we had of Darwin's meaning of natural selection, survival mm. of the fittest, right. only the strong survive, the world has never no. worked in that no. way. That is always leading to collapse. When we yeah. divide ourselves in cl class, we compete against one each other in organizations, in school, and in life. Well, that's not even necessarily yeah. true in ev evolutional yeah, theory, right? Absolutely. So it's our work, our world works in symbiosis and harmony yes. and collaboration and cooperation, one with another one, uh, with another species, with each other. And in our body, we have these symbionts made out right. of microorganisms, right. microbial genes. We couldn't survive without cells. that bacteria that lives yeah. in our gut. But yeah, we yeah. would be stuffed. We yeah. would be really in big trouble. And uh, that good gut health. And I mean, we have more microbial cells and genes in our body than we have human cells and genes in our body. We have more connection to the oak tree, the squirrel, than we do with one of each other uh, as humans. We crawled out of this primordial soup of this earth. And that's, that's why I really love her, not only thinking of what is the core model of civilization frameworks how does the world work and how has it always worked and she coined a term it has a lot to do with um it's not only a term it's a scientific fact of the way the world's always worked it's not only symbiosis but the world's fastest growing form of human evolutionary innovation is what we call symbiosis. It's an ecological phenomenon. Okay. And it's not just exponential. It's not 30x. It's a super exponential, and it verges on quantum tunneling. When we harness symbiosis in an organization, in our cities, in mm. the way, as the core model of the world, the way the world's always worked, holy hell. What do you, what do you think? I mean, I want to take, I'm going to go off on a tangent sure. here. Sure. Because, you know, it, it's, we're sitting 
sitting out on the balcony and you know in the early evening in Bangkok and you <laughs> know let's get let's get a bit stunning, uh, breathtaking here. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, so um, I, I want to ask you: Have you heard about the quantum consciousness theory? I have. Uh, and, uh, you know, because I'm actually really interested in that. You know, there seems to be some quantum effect to consciousness and the fact that, you know, like the, the concept of the source and that we could all be connected. You know, there's so much I've seen in my life, especially living around the world. You know, I've lived in, I obviously born in Australia, but I lived in London for a time. I lived in Hong Kong. Uh, you know, I spent lots of time in Singapore and, and, and Tokyo. I lived in Dubai for many years and I've lived here in Thailand now the last four or five years, lived in the States for 12 years. So I've seen, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, I've traveled, uh, uh, you know, probably 50 countries just in the last uh, 10 years. And, um, you know, I just see everyone as human family. Everyone's super connected. Uh, you know, we've got more in common than we have that keeps us apart. Um, and so it's nice to think that there's this elegance where, you know, um, we have the potential to be consciously connected in, in many ways as well. I mean, we get, we get glimpses of this when we come together as groups and, you know, we find consensus and things like that. But I, I, this, is, this is sort of the great mystery to me. Why is it that humans, you know, we, we are tribal? Why do we spin off in groups and compete against each other? Because clearly, even if you look back at Aristotle and his view of philosophy, Human cooperation is our greatest secret weapon to uh, innovation and advancement. And we rarely, we do it in small groups at a, at a company level and a market level. Why aren't we doing it at a national and international level? You know, even the, the COVID-19 crisis, the, the climate crisis, we can see that um, consensus is really hard to get to, to, to get that cooperation. What are your, what are your thoughts on how we, we fix that element of the, the system that's broken? Sometimes they call that the human condition. Right. They really do. It's a, this feeling or this thought or this action that we, we need to compete against one, one another. We need to form cliques or tribes or groups to, to kind of compete against one another. And it's really interesting because I, I, I speak a lot about regenerative economic models or ecological economic models. And they're, I use what I just mentioned, symbiosis, as a form of uh, an ecological phenomenon as a source of human evolutionary innovation, and the fastest one. In an, an actual organization models, the way you structure an organization, and I, I'm not competing against other organizations. Mm. But if you were to put a regular capitalistic extractive or just business as usual organizational model head to head against one that I'm talking about, I'd blow it out of the water. Yes. It's more abundant, it's more resilient, it survives through pandemics and climate change. It's a, a better model. You lower your cost of goods sold, you increase your profits, you have abundance, you have happy employees, happy customers. Uh, it's just a better model and it's also a better life model. And, you know, I, I hope this doesn't diverge off onto a tangent, but I think it's really connected or tied. You and I have been talking about the future of work forever. Yeah, yeah. It's all bullshit. There yeah. is no such thing as a work-life balance. There is only life. Right. If you are one person at work and another person in life, you're probably bipolar <laughs> or you're probably schizophrenic if you're yeah. at work and then at home and then somewhere else. Then you're three different personalities. And, and let's say that all three of those areas are going extremely well. You're doing great at work, making super advances, doing great at home, having super advances there in church or other hobbies, you're doing great there. But guess what? You're probably staying still, right? Stuck in the middle, not advancing at all because all three of those are probably going in different directions. Right. So you're probably still right where you're at and you're saying, well, I'm getting ready to retire. What have I done with my life? Where, where are we going? And I think that really ties to the model. It ties to I mean, what you asked. You found a way to turn your life which is a passion for regenerating society and the world and so forth into a career. So you've managed to coalesce those things into, you know, uh, 
an approach for you personally. Um, uh, but, um, you know, uh, like, are you supporting uh, concepts like universal basic income and things like that? Or do you think we just need to, like, throw out the whole system? Because in my view, UBI is a way of, like, just extending capitalism just a little bit more so we can keep consumption going when it's not, um, you know, like, the, you know, particularly with AI um, and, and climate, um, you know, both of those uh, have the potential to just break capitalism because you know the capitalism doesn't have a solution for either of them really i i gave a workshop this year in february at the world government summit at the, on the future of governance i was basically talking about what are the new governance models government economic models of right. the future um so take us out 2040 2050 you know how how's it look and how's it changing the, well i want to answer that question ubi I, I, okay, I'm sure, sure. 100% on, on board with you. It, yep. it is an extension of an extractive capitalism. It's, it's, uh, it's great. I, but it I allows th- people to work in areas that they feel more passionate about yeah, rather than yeah. just putting food on the table, right? I, I have a concept I developed years ago uh, with Herman Daly, and I, I, I want to eventually bring it out in another book, but it's, it's taking a twist on UBI and giving an old economic model, an old ecological economic model that we've used for well over 45 years, um, a rebirth into the future um, that really works, but we've been using it in the wrong way. We've been using it as an accounting principle to say how bad humans are in the Anthropocene and how harmful we are, and we use it in a form called the ecological footprint and earth overshoot to say how bad people are doing in our world and with our economies and and impacting climate change and that we're overshooting our resources. Well, there's a form, a flip side of that model where everybody can receive a twist on UBI. It's called an inalienable human right to that global hectare that we use to calculate um, the Earth overshoot day. Instead, we give everybody that inalienable right to clean water, clean air, sanitation, food, security of body, security. Yeah, I, of I, I mean, I, I think we measure economic growth and economic success with these measures that economists have produced over the years. You know, GDP growth, full employment, trade surpluses, inflation, all this sort of stuff. But if you were to measure the success of an economy, on its ability to fill the basic needs of the citizenry, then you get a very different view of economic performance. You know, you you know, even with the richest world in in uh, sorry, the richest economy in the world today, the sta- in the states, it fails as you know from that basic standard in terms of providing healthcare, housing, um, you know, uh, food and sustenance to to the citizens. I yeah. think China's outdone U.S. a long time ago, don't yeah. you, on economics, uh, economies, period. Uh, I think they're the biggest powerhouse. I think more than... So what, what's the difference in terms of thinking that, or approach that m- makes China able to do this? Because some would argue it's the one-party system, right? That's a whole nother can of worms. (laughs) Yeah, it could be the one-party system. I think it's a generational thinking. They think in much longer-scale terms than than. uh, But China does feel responsibility to the community at a government level, which the U.S. doesn't. It feels responsibility to the market and individuals. Yeah. Right. Survival of the fittest. Exactly. Yeah. And it's always this competition. It's always what new governance structures or deals have been set and we're still we're kind of it's us against them mentality but are you optimistic about the future mark absolutely what makes you optimistic one understanding the exponential function two understanding that symbiosis if harnessed we can solve these problems very easily. We have all the tools. We have right. the knowledge and capability. It's really we're our own worst enemies. We're, we're hampering and holding ourselves back. And in reality, if we understand it, we're actually just leaving 
abundance on the table. We're leaving extra money, however you want to say it, if you're a capitalist, you're leaving money on the table, which you shouldn't do because the, the more we empower everybody with equality and, and the same rights, the more we have that uh, global abundance. And, and, and I, I really think, you know, you spoke earlier about global citizenry, how you've lived all over the world. I believe that, you know, that's another part of it. We're all on the same spaceship Earth. We're all crew members of spaceship Earth. There are no passengers. In this way, the stories that we tell each other on how we divide each other up and separate each other, it's not serving us well anymore. Right. Um, you know, your, your family's all over the world. My family's all over the world. I can plan to continue to travel yeah. all over the world and work with organizations, even in the one party system in China and, and even in the, the USA, uh, all over the world. And I, I see those changes coming. The only way to get rid of a bad model and system, capitalism or extractive neoclassical, classical economics, is not to bitch and moan and complain about it. Let's, let's create a better one that makes the old model obsolete. Let's make one that's so damn good that nobody has a complaint about it because right. it just works and it works for everyone. And that's that core question that our Buckminster Fuller said, what does a world that works for everyone look like that uh, we can achieve through spontaneous cooperation without the ecological offense of anyone or the disadvantage of anyone. So the capitalists would argue that in a utopian view of the world like that, that um, with the only way we could get there is to lower the standard of living of, um, you know, pe people certainly living in the West, right? But this sounds like a capitalist argument to keep the existing, existing system going. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, yeah, it's a Fanta Morgana. It's a it's a bullshit ruse because it just doesn't exist. If if you have abundance, if they have abundance, everybody does. It's not it's not the sacrifice. It's always this mentality of reductionism and mechanizing human beings right. down to the lowest common denominator. That's that's not what yeah. it's all about. That's it. it it's actually um, the models that we're talking about. It's not about reducing. Or, or that, we can still fly, we can still eat, eat meat and steak, and we can still do certain things. We just need to do it without human suffering and creating right. greenhouse gas emissions or global grand challenges. Yeah. If, if Bertrand Picard can fly around the world in the solar impulse plane on so, clean tech, on solar yeah. energy, um, there is a much better and cleaner way to do things. Let's figure it out. Let's use those technologies. It's just and, a technology and, and question. Show, show, yeah. show the world that there is a different way to do it. And we can still have population. We can still have those things that people say, oh, well, there's too many people on. How are we going to feed everybody? Again, we're focusing on the wrong areas. If we change the model, we change the way we do it, we will have more than enough. I, uh, I think I agree with you. Um, you know, there are different ways of going about approaching farming and uh, production of meat and so forth that we're looking at. Just technical uh, solutions, really. Clean water and sanitation for people shouldn't be a question. Um, access to energy is getting cheaper all the time. So, you know, it seems like we're going in the right direction. But tell me about... Um, the world of 2050 and what you hope for in terms of human society? A world that works for 100% of humanity by 2050 without the ecological offense of, or disadvantage of anyone. Um, to really have all 8 billion or plus 2050, maybe we'll have 10 billion people by that time um, have the empowerment and the basic rights to live an adaptive lifestyle of health and sustainability within the safe operating spaces of our planetary boundaries. That's the future I see. I know we can do it, and, and uh, we can do it in a short time. We have the goals, we have the targets, we have the indicators, we have 
Um, so it's not a technology question. It's not a technology question. It's not an economics question because we can reorganize around economics. It seems like it's a cultural issue. Like, how do we create that culture? The culture that we're all uh, this homo symbiose that we realize we're all together on this planet, that we're all part of it. It's interesting. Now we're talking about e- even about that, you know, there's might be UFOs and, and, and alien life. Right, disclosure. And, and other, yeah. yeah, all these things popping up lately. So I, I think it's a cultural thing that we need to realize that we're all in this together. Yeah. If we solve it, we can really solve it once and for all. What is this rat race that, that we're on and, and, and what system have we created? It's actually not working for humanity anymore. And uh, it's it's sad because I, I asked that question. So not only did our Buck Minister Fuller say it, I asked this question to 3,500 people on my video podcast and on video before I recorded them with their answer. What does a world that works for everyone look like for you? And you'd be surprised. Um, all of the people I asked, that's a great title. Except for, a book, for seven people, didn't know. I thought oh, their the smoke was coming out of their ears. They're going to have a grand mal seizure. Eyes roll back in their head. They started to stutter. Only seven people had a similar answer and could answer immediately. The rest just kind of stuttered it's and then they don't, it's, we're not taught to think like that yeah we? they're not taught to think like that at all and then yeah. and, and then here's a crazy thing and this is why i did it on video because i did this social experiment i was hoping okay this is going to be a great video everybody's going to know and or the solution's right right there in the question i asked people the same question on the same day twice both times they gave me a different answer yeah i asked them on over weeks months and years Every time their answer was different and always changed. Nobody had the same answer every time. Um, And and so there's a lot of learning lessons. I think it's okay if you don't know the answer to that question, but then you need to be okay with the direction your future is going. I always ask also the burning question, WTF, and it's not the swear word, it's what's the futures? Where are we going? If you don't know what the future is or what a world that works for everyone looks like, it's okay as long as you're okay with the, the way the world is working. If you're not okay with that, then it's time to ask yourself that question, get clear with that, and then divest your money, made your vo- make your voice heard, and, and things like that so that you know where you're, where you're going on in the future. The most interesting thing out of all of it is And it's and it's really it's really funny. It's, I went and asked Chat GPT, Chat GPT, this question. I asked it in India. I asked it in Africa. Asked it in the U.S. and I asked it in Germany. And I asked it 120 times. And every time it was the exact same answer. Even though that damn refresh button is supposed to change right. every time, it was the same answer. And it was very close to our Buck Minister Fuller's answer, and it was very close to what I told you uh, the answer was. It was actually even a little bit more eloquent, and it went into more detail on specifically what a world works for everyone looks like. And that says two things. Have we domesticated technology or chat GPT or artificial intelligence, or has it domesticated us? And why in the hell does it know the answer? And well, 3,500 people yeah, yeah. on my podcast don't know the answer. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's systemic thinking in many yeah. ways, probably. Well, Mark, it's been great to have you on the show. Um, how can people find out more about uh, what you're doing, the work you're doing, the, the books, uh, and get in touch with you as a, as a futurist? Um, Bess is Mark Buckley on, on um, LinkedIn. MarkBuckley.Earth is my website. I'm can be Googled and you can see all the talks and events that I do. I do pretty much this year, 31 countries, 200 events already. So it's just absolute craziness. Uh, hopefully people can find me that way. And then I do books of philanthropy. This year I released a book called Before This Decade Is Out, done in conjunction with PricewaterhouseCoopers. It's based on the meme from John F. Kennedy before this decade right, is out. Yeah, we'll yeah. send people to the moon. And basically the, the meme is before this decade is out, seven years left to go to achieve the Paris Agreement. 
and the sustainable development goals and what will you do yeah. before this decade is out it's uh, not as we much we need those big yeah. ambitious goals we do yeah. big hairy audacious goals i don't know if goals. you remember that speech that um uh Jeff Daniels gave for the newsroom that you know the three minutes you know and he and he, he finishes it says why why America isn't the greatest country in the world because he says we used to have these big audacious goals you know we build these big machines that could take us to the moon and all these things and and um, you know we seem to be much more micro focused these days focused on the politics and focused on what this uh, celebrity said or what this billionaire said and just not focused on the big picture, which is uh, if we work together, humanity not not only survives, but can thrive. Absolutely. I agree. It's a good way to finish our podcast. Mark, thanks for joining us on The Futurists. Thank you so much. It's all been all the best pleasure. with your travels, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll continue the conversation. I hope so. I'd love to have you on my podcast as well. Sure, absolutely. Talk about your books and many other great things. That's it for this week on The Futurists. We'll see you again next week. Until then, we'll see you in the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at futuristpodcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.